You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and an LLS volunteer, and I'd like to thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Today, we're going to be joined by Dr. Tung Nguyen, who's the director of the University of Florida Pediatric Hemostasis Treatment Center and the University of Florida Pediatric Cancer Survivorship Program. Dr. Nguyen joined the University of Florida faculty in 2012 and is an associate professor in that division. We're also going to be joined by Brolio Hernandez, who is a young adult survivor of Hodgkin's lymphoma, a childhood cancer advocate, and an LLS volunteer. Tung and Brolio, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Ken, for having us. Thank you for the introduction, Ken. Thank you. Brolio, I'd like to start with you and just to ask you to maybe to briefly tell your story. What I'd love to hear about is what impact has going through cancer treatment as a young adult had on you? Right. Well, I mean, I think my life was impacted in so many ways in almost every single aspect that I could think of. I was 16. I was just living my normal life, thinking everything was fine. I was healthy. I mean, my mom is a cancer survivor as well as my aunt. So it definitely ran in the family and I was very aware of what it was. But I never thought that at at 16 I would be dealing with something like this. So I was diagnosed with stage three Hodgkin's lymphoma. I was treated at Sylvester Cancer Center and South Florida. And I started treatment right away. I was homeschooled. And I guess school even was just such an adjustment to make. School was one of them. Family life was another one. Just the way that we ran our daily life at home. I mean, we're talking prior to COVID, all of a sudden we had to start wearing masks and spraying things down with Lysol and making sure that everybody that came into the house wasn't sick. I was talking to someone the other day and we were talking about how this, it was almost written an irony that I would go through COVID right after this. It was almost like you were preparing for an entire year before, you know, by wearing these masks and, and, and whatnot. So, I mean, every single aspect of my life, I think, was impacted from my school life to my family life. When a child or a young adult gets cancer, it's their whole family gets cancer. And I don't think that just applies for young people. I think that applies for many families out there of all ages. Everybody is impacted, not just you. Your routines are just changed from a day to the next. You know, I want to ask you a question often. I think about toward the end of when I'm talking with someone, but post-traumatic growth, uh, post-cancer growth, sort of people talk about, you know, silver linings. As you reflect on your experience, any thoughts about that, sort of how you're different as a person now? I'll ask the same thing to, to Tongue as well. I think I would have so much to say to that, but I guess summarized, uh, it's not something that I would particularly have chosen and say, well, maybe for me to see life in a different way, what I need is cancer. (laughs) I don't think really anybody thinks that. But uh, now in retrospect, having come out of it and being on the other side, I think looking back, it just made me such a better person. I've always, I think, seen life in a very positive way. But I guess just, you know, sometimes we get caught up in our day to day 
It makes you reflect a lot. So I think that coming out of cancer and being in remission made me realize that there's no single day that I should be taking for granted and that every new day for me is an opportunity to go out there and, and be able to spread the message that I want to spread and do the things that I want to do. Coming out of it gave me a much more positive outlook on life and it just inspired me to go out there and share my story and just spread that positivity and the, the silver lining that I got from it. And thank you for doing it. Tung, I want to ask you the same question. Your career is treating young adults, children, adolescents with cancer. Any advice that you would give about how to not just bounce back, but also to how to bounce forward, as some people would say? Yeah, no, I love that. I think the one thing I would reflect on throughout my career caring for children is how amazed I am that children are just so resilient whatever life throws at them, however hard things are, you know, you can see the resiliency in these kids. They take it in stride and they are just natural at moving on and, you know, like you said, bouncing forward. As a healthcare professional taking care of these kids, I feel it my responsibility to return back to them the childhood that they lose when they go through a treatment like this. They start, you know, their post treatment, having lost months, years of their life, having gone through the treatment, and that time that the cancer took away from them, they deserve to have back. They shouldn't lose that just because of the diagnosis that they had, you know, and whether that lands them at a time when they're still in the midst of their childhood or at a time when they're a young adult moving into adulthood and all the life is happening. I feel as a medical professional, I think it's important for us to be able to really look at what their needs are at that point in their life and really helping them to catch up with the rest of the pack. Yeah, neat. Let's talk about that period when treatment ends. And treatment could be relatively short, relatively long. I mean, it's going to obviously differ for each child or young adult. Let's focus on that transition from active treatment to survivorship care. What are some of the challenges that patients and their families face? Yeah, I don't know if there's a great way to generalize for these kids. I think everybody probably goes through the process in a slightly different way. Some kids have already started kind of the bounce back forward well before they finish their therapy. Others may not start to kind of think themselves as a survivor until years down the line and you have everything kind of in between. And, you know, how they reflect as their own kind of individual view of themselves, I think just makes all the difference in terms of how they move on in life and kind of progress into, you know, kind of what we all go through in life as far as kind of growing up. Yeah. Brother, let me ask about your experience. Do you remember that period of transition and some of your thoughts and feelings? Yeah, so after my treatment, I finished towards the end of 2019. And as I was coming out of it, I was still immunocompromised. You know, as I had mentioned, we were still taking so many precautions at home. And then right after, COVID comes along. 
And so uh, there's even more to worry about because I, you know, my immune system still wasn't up to par. So I think that was a particular type of transition for me because then we went from being worried about, you know, me catching a, a disease or a virus to then being even more worried with the pandemic we had going on. So that was one type of transition. I think another one after that was integrating back into senior year of high school in person. So, you know, I went back and I registered at the high school that I had been at prior and I was doing a hybrid model, so taking classes from home. I was still having clinic every week and following up with my doctors. But I think out of looking at all of these, one of the biggest changes for me was going to college. So I was applying to college during my senior year of high school, ended up getting into the University of Southern California to study film production and then made my way out there. So I think a big one was, what do I do with my care team? because they are the people that have been following me since this whole thing started. On one hand, you have the potential of, well, maybe I should get a care team out in that other state where I'm studying to follow up with them. That's just so much more complicated. There's just so much more work to be done and for them to get to know you and your health history. So there was a lot of talks with my doctors. I was traveling back and forth. Whatever break I could get from school that I would come back home, I would just schedule those visits for follow-ups or for scans to make sure everything was all right. So I think that was a big part of my transition process after cancer treatment. It was particularly the college experience and how to balance you know, the care I was receiving at home versus out and away at school. I think you raised such an interesting point because it's possible to focus, as my question sort of did, on the process of transition. But in the meantime, life changes too. And not only the circumstances of all of our lives with the pandemic, but also each of our individual lives headed off to college, et cetera. So I guess there's a lot of moving pieces at the same time. Let me ask you, are there a group of children, young adult uh, adolescents who get through this with essentially without late and long-term effects, or is it the majority who do? Maybe give us the higher view and then focus in a little bit on what kind of things you see. Oh, of course. So I think most children probably have some measurable effects from their cancer, whether that be, you know, physical medical effects or, you know, kind of changes to who they are as a person and kind of changes to their developmental processes. That would also include kind of changes in the way they deal with, you know, kind of emotional and psychological stresses in their life. We think if you really look at late effects encompassing all of those, I think most, you know, survivors probably will show kind of the changes in one form or another of having gone through the treatment process. The health consequences that have a effect on the outcomes of life, I think probably are fewer and farther in between. And that's especially true as we've kind of really refined our therapy and really looked at specifically developing therapies for children that, you know, have fewer long-term consequences and fewer and lesser uh, late effects. And the greatest example is, you know, kind of the use of radiation therapy in treating CNS disease in leukemia patients. That really is unheard of nowadays because of the secondary cancer that that can develop, as well as the effects on brain development over time and the losses that the kids have. And we've moved almost completely away from using radiation therapy in the most current and modern chemo 
treatment protocols and have gone to really utilizing chemotherapies directly into the spinal fluid as the way to treat the leukemia in the spinal fluid, causing as few side effects as possible. Thank you. Let me open it up to both of you in terms of uh, psychosocial effects. Brolio, your feeling of uh, a connection with friends and your social environment, how was that impacted uh, both during treatment and after treatment by this experience? Yeah, I think during treatment for me, I was very lucky that I had friends by my side that, you know, they were very supportive, as well as my family. They all were just so loving and understanding of what was going on. And, you know, like I said, my family had dealt with this prior. I think also a very big part of the social aspect, interestingly enough, was the care that I received from my providers. I mean, I can't emphasize enough how much of an impact your doctors and your child life specialists and the nurses at the clinic or hospital days made for me. It was such an important and central part of how I saw myself, how I saw the treatment that I was receiving, how I saw, you know, everything that was going on. And I have to say, I'm just so beyond grateful for the team that I had. Everybody from my doctors to the people at the front desk at uh, University of Miami, I think that the teams that care for young adults and children have this influence as to how they speak about what the kids and patients are going through. And it really makes a very big impact. So that was a, a very important part to me. And I always reached out to a friend. But I know that, you know, just from being around other patients, a lot of people my age, it's not the case for everybody. I think a lot of kids that I've met at some point have felt alone or they've kind of felt like such an outlier, feeling like they have this unique curse that makes them different from everybody else, but in a very, very negative way. I think my point of view was just trying to take the best that I could from it and, you know, just going along in, on that ride. <laughs> Probably you were talking about sort of the transition for you and Tung, I'm wondering if you can say a few words about the transition for the care team and also for the family. Rolio was kind of talking about you know moving from treatment to survivorship as a patient. And I was reflecting back as a provider yeah. on, you know, kind of these patients and their families come in and during their treatment see us weekly, see us, you know, kind of you know, monthly, see us on such a regular basis for months and months and years and years. And all of a sudden, you know, they're done with their treatment and then their visits kind of dwindle down and we don't see them anywhere near as often. And the family, you know, kind of loses their social network very, very quickly in that transition period. And we kind of forget the families that come along with the patients. You know, the parents have dedicated the last, you know, six, nine months, maybe several years of their life, really taking care of their child. And all of a sudden, it's kind of like retirement. You know, what do you do with all this time that you've been given back with arriving at the completion of treatment? And the other aspect of it was regarding kind of the providers, you know, us as, uh, as providers, you know, kind of come to develop relationships and uh, friendships and really the families almost gain a second, you know, family through the care team that's provided. So much of the care team also actually has an impact on them to kind of not see the family and the patient in a good way. You know, certainly we don't 
want our patients coming to clinic all the time because they need treatment, but it also is you know kind of a, a social network that the providers and the care team loses. Uh, and, and it's something that we as providers actually, as the care team actually have talks about, you know, these families and what we miss about, you know, certain families and, and what we miss about kind of taking care of them. So I think that those are parts of the transitions too, that oftentimes patients uh, don't, don't necessarily get to kind of see. Brilliant. Let me check in with you. What was that experience like for the people who love you who went through this with you? How much is cancer still an ongoing kind of topic of conversation and concern? Yeah, I have to say I'm very lucky to have the family that I have and the support that they have given me in every aspect of my life and obviously when I went through my treatment. My mom had to stop working to take care of me. And obviously, you know, that had financial strains on the family and just a whole another set of, of repercussions. So it was a difficult time. It was the constant elephant in the room, even if we were watching a movie and trying to get our minds off of it. I think that transitioning, you know, after I was in remission, Obviously, we were all very happy. It did take a bit of time for us to sort of start getting back into our usual routine, our usual flow. You know, hair is coming back. It's very slow, bit by bit. So there was just so many aspects that just took a while to sort of fall into their place. I think that now, currently, I have my checkups, I have follow-up screenings and whatnot. It's not really a, a daily topic of conversation. I think that mostly it comes up when I volunteer at this point or when it comes up in a conversation and we're reflecting on something. But it's very much still present and it's something to remember and to keep with me. And something, you know, this kind of connects to, to something that I was I was speaking about earlier, which are the screenings and the follow-ups, which are just obviously so important. I remember the day when I finished treatment, my nurse practitioner handed over this document and she said, look, this is your calendar for the next 10 years. <laughs> and so it was just this schedule of visits. And so we laughed. We have like you know, all these PET scans and all these x-rays. And it was kind of funny at the time. But, you know, Ken, this connects back to what I was saying. If I had not received that education from my providers of how important what each of these medications that I was receiving entailed in terms of long-term side effects, and they had not really sat with me and said, look, you know, this medicine could damage your heart over time, or this medicine could have an impact on your lungs, and had shown me all those numbers, then maybe I wouldn't have taken it as seriously as I have. So that's why it's very important that we're all on the same page and that I think as patients, we understand what's happening and the, the seriousness of following those long-term care plans from your providers. Yeah, terrific. Thank you. And that actually is a wonderful endorsement for that. When, how many survivors are there in the United States of childhood and adolescent young adult cancers? And then what does it mean when we talk about survivorship guidelines? What are those and what is a survivorship care plan? A number is a moving target, I think, with pediatric cancer. And, you know, I think the last solid numbers that the CDC puts out probably have the population of just childhood cancer survivors, depending on kind of how you define what are childhood cancers to begin with, above 250,000 patients at this point. You know, I think the really a better way to kind of really look at the, the impact of treatment is looking at the fact that uh, overall 
85% of kids who are diagnosed with cancer, you know, survive their cancer and grow into adulthood. You know, 85% is a phenomenal number for a disease that was universally and uniformly fatal decades ago. Yes. What are the survivorship guidelines and how do you use them? How should we use them? So what we've learned over the years as a provider community. So I I know when we first started treating cancer in general and pediatric cancer in particular, it was kind of like the Wild West, you know, use what you can to get rid of the cancer. And the effects of that weren't really thought of because the goal was to save the child's life. And that has moved away from just simply curing the cancer, which is still a primary goal, but doing it in such a fashion where we do it with as few late effects as possible so that the children who grow up and grow into adulthood don't have to live with health consequences from the treatments that we provided. And those guidelines grow from that. Despite our best efforts, there are late effects that do occur, however minor or severe that they might be. And those guidelines are from our provider community looking at, you know, these are the common experiences from the medical standpoint that survivors have. These are the things that we need to be looking for and how to look for them and then how to really manage them to provide the children with the best possible outcome with what they have to deal with. So they're put together as a community. So I myself working on the guidelines you know, uh, I'm working alongside nurses, working alongside other pediatric cancer providers and physicians, and we come up with the best data and really kind of the best approach to how to handle these problems. Yeah, and I would also like to add that a lot of this that you're mentioning, doctor, were conversations that I also had with my providers before starting my treatment. I mean, I was 16 at the time, so I think that I was, you know, a bit more mature uh, in terms of age to to be able to understand what was going on as opposed to like, you know, maybe an an eight-year-old. I had my healthcare providers explain a lot of this to me, like these are the drugs that you're receiving and these are the side effects that these drugs have, but, you know, we're going off of these standards because we're not just caring for, like you said, getting rid of the cancer, but also what are the effects that these medications might have, you know, anthracyclines on your heart, receiving doxorubicin or whatever else might be. So to me, that was so essential and and that was so important, not just knowing that I was receiving XYZ medication, but what I was receiving and how that would affect my health down the line after it completed its purpose. Yeah, I say recognizing some of the unique effects that occur because these kids are being diagnosed and treated in childhood, you know, is is very important and kind of what makes the childhood guidelines unique. Another great example would be the risk and incidence of breast cancer in children who get radiation therapy through their chest. You know, there's uh, very, very high rates of breast cancer that occur, almost similar to the rates of breast cancer that occur in families where there's breast cancer genes um, that are found. And so we developed these guidelines so that we recognize that that does happen and develop recommendations so that breast cancer screening can occur at a much, much earlier age for women who grow up having received the therapy. And as they go through their life with the screening, if breast cancer were to develop, it can be caught early, it can be treated early, and they can be provided with treatments that really provide them with the best possible outcome for that eventuality. 
So I'm going to ask both of you, if you had a grade, it's a question, you know, sort of grade where things are at, because ideally there should be wonderful coordination between the oncologist, pediatrician, family doctor, survivorship clinic specialists. And then Brolio, I'll ask you the same thing just for your own experience. And in terms of survivorship care, how can we do better? I wish I could grade on a curve, I think is kind of how I'd answer that question. If I was grading on a curve, I would say that if we compare pediatric cancer to the survivorship care that's provided in a lot of other you know types of cancers and the survivorship groups, you know, adult cancers, breast cancers, colon cancers, mm. I think you know, pediatric cancer kind of scores high and the grade yes. would put them at the top of the curve as far as the survivorship and awareness of the long-term consequences that the treatment can cause. If we weren't curving it and using comparators, then I think there is definitely room for us to do a better job and room for us to do a much better job. And the grade assigned would probably put us at a C, you know, where I think we're doing some wonderful things, but there certainly are many more things that we could do much, much better. As you well said, Imbroglio, how would you grade your own experience in terms of this follow-up? For me, I had a wonderful experience, but I think that a lot of that was because of the hard work that child life specialists put into, the care that they gave me, the social workers who just, you know, sat with my mom and gave her a list of resources and options and made those calls and made those connections. Communication was so important with, you know, whether it was the school that I was going to or making sure that there was paperwork going from one end to the other between institutions so that we could all be on the same page. So for me, I guess the grade would be an A, but I think that it's not fair to generalize my experience as to what everybody else yeah. has. Having a grade for survivorship, that was probably one of the areas that we can do a much better job with, is providing all survivors with a care plan. As much as Brulu received his care plan actually right from the outset, that doesn't happen universally. As somebody who provides survivorship care, you know, we do that universally with our patients as well. But there certainly are, you know, patients who finish their therapy. And, you know, I can remember the times when these patients come back to me and the only thing that they have ever been told is that once you hit five years, you're cured of your cancer and don't recognize that there are, you know, late effects that can occur even beyond that period of time. And it gets to be frustrating after a while when that's kind of the theme that patients kind of walk away with. Not that, you know, they can't live full and healthy lives but I think there are late effects that just need to be monitored and monitored well, kind of well and professionally. It's not just about the care plan, but making sure that the care plan is a living and breathing document that patients can utilize all through their life. And so there are resources for us to be able to kind of do that you know, for the patients and not just kind of produce a document that is a one-time event that, that remains static all through their lives. And one last question, any resources you would recommend for education for patients and caregivers on this topic? Yeah, so as far as the resources, I think LLS to me is one of the big ones, not just because I'm speaking on this podcast, but truly, you know, we were referred to LLS at first by a social worker at my clinic, and they helped us out tremendously when my mom had to stop working and with so many resources and support with events that they had. I mean, when COVID came along, I remember this team at LLS named me boy of the year. And this one day during COVID, I woke up and there was a caravan outside my house with like 
the entire Miami fire department and police department and these, <laughs> I mean, really, the, the LLS has been a really big, a really big one for me. And now that we're speaking also about transitioning to other parts of life, when I went off to college, I found out that LLS had just started just this past year in 2022, a scholarship for survivors who are now going to college. So I applied and I'm a recipient of that scholarship. And that was also a huge help for me treatment and school going to college was you know we had a bit more of a buffer of time in between but for some people that might be less and, and obviously there's a big financial strain going through cancer treatment so a scholarship like the one that I received from LLS was of such big help and there's many other resources out there I would say social workers and child life specialists are a really big part of helping make that happen I'm sure Dr. Wynn also has yeah. more to share yeah I would echo exactly what Brolio was saying. I think the Leukemia Lymphoma Society is such a wonderful organization, you know, kind of provides support for our patients from the beginning all the way through treatment. And then it's wonderful that Leukemia Lymphoma Society really recognizes and has done so much on the back end, helping with their survivorship and helping with the transition to recovery and care as well. And I wouldn't be lending my time to support LLS if it didn't feel that way. I think other professional resources that might be helpful, we talked about the survivorship guidelines themselves. You know, that's actually a publicly available set of guidelines that is designed to be usable for not just me as a uh, cancer provider and uh, somebody who, you know, takes care of patients in their survivorship, but it's actually designed so that it's usable by any health physician, you know, and really, quite frankly, anybody with kind of um, medical health knowledge. Uh, and so they can access it and really kind of look at what the guidelines are and utilize it as a resource to really direct care for any survivor that you can come across, whether you know that's the primary care physician, that is an adult oncologist, that is the nurse practitioner, the social worker that is providing care for the child. The Children's Oncology Group itself actually provides resources, uh, educational materials for patients during treatment and after treatment, and provides kind of uh, instruction guide on kind of how to access and develop those resources for the family. I also think about some of the non-traditional resources that we kind of sometimes forget. I think as you move into survivorship, you kind of lose sight of the fact that your team that took care of you is still a team that's backing you and they don't turn their back on you. If you tap that resource, anybody within your treatment team will step to the plate and really you know, do everything in their power to kind of help you in whatever way that they can. If I were to kind of emphasize some points, I would emphasize the fact that the pediatric cancer survivors are out there and as somebody who provides care, you're going to see them and encounter them. And I think caring for them, you know, the resources are available and the resources are easy to use. And it shouldn't be something that is uh, so specialized that I am the only provider who can provide that care. It really is a very democratic process and we want really all healthcare providers to be able to really deliver the care that these patients need. So I just want to, as we wrap up, I just want to comment that really both of you said, and it gives me an opportunity to give a shout out to the whole team and how much all of you who are listening really contribute 
Today, I have to say this has been a wonderful conversation. We've been joined by Dr. Tung Nguyen, who is from the University of Florida and a pediatric cancer survivorship program director and expert. And we've been joined by Brolio Hernandez, who's a young adult survivor of Hodgkin's lymphoma. Tung and Brolio, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Ken. It's been a pleasure to be here and to talk with you guys. It's been a pleasure to kind of have the conversation. We don't get to talk about it enough. Yeah. You're right. I'd like to thank all of you for listening to this wonderful and informative episode. For a listing of all of our healthcare professional continuing education activities, podcasts, and healthcare professional resources, including a fact sheet on blood cancer survivorship treatment and ongoing patient care, please visit lls.org slash CE. For any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800 955 Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatment, financial, and other support resources. And I encourage you to sign up to receive notification of future podcast episodes by subscribing at treatingbloodcancers.org. LLS also provides resources for patients, survivors, and their families, including a series of podcasts that can be found at lls.org slash support. And we look forward to you joining us on future podcasts. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.